Now let us turn to that psalm that we have just sung, and that is Psalm 2. Psalm 2. We have read it, and we have sung it, and now let's look at it, and we'll read the first three verses. Why do the heathen rage... And the people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. And may God give his blessing to the reading of this portion of his word. We know from the book of Acts, chapter 4, that this psalm was written by David. Though his name is not mentioned here, it is mentioned there. Furthermore, from Acts chapter 13... We know that this is indeed the second psalm. And so the order that we have is the order that goes back to the the time of the New Testament at least. Those two references in the book of Acts in the New Testament to Psalm 2 shows us that the early church saw this psalm of David as relevant to their time. And we today should see this psalm as relevant to our time. It is a psalm that is always relevant. Certainly we see in this psalm the opposition against Christ while he was here on earth in his incarnation. But we also see this opposition against God and against Christ that continues to this day. And so the question of verse 1 is still a relevant question. And we want to focus especially upon verse 1 here in this message today. Why do the heathen rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. Now, this is a question. And the remainder of the psalm, in a sense, works from this question. It explains the question and and shows God's ultimate triumph over all of the rage and vanity of man. But notice... In this question, first of all, what is assumed? It is assumed that the heathen do rage. And the question is, why do the heathen rage? The term heathen here means the nations. It speaks of the Gentiles in contrast to the Jewish nation of which David was a part. 
It refers to those who worship false gods and not the true and living God. It is interesting, however, when this verse is quoted in Acts chapter 4 that I referred to a moment ago, that it isn't just Gentiles who are in view as the heathen in that context, but it includes Israel. Let me read here from Acts chapter 4. It quotes that in this prayer meeting in the early church, they quote from Psalm 2, and it says, Of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. There's the providence of God that we considered in the previous hour. But notice in the, in the explanation given here in Acts chapter 4, heathen included the unbelievers in the nation of Israel as much as the unbelievers among the Gentiles. It was, in fact, the people of Israel that stirred up the Gentiles, Herod, Pontius Pilate, to crucify God's anointed Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do the heathen rage? Those who do not bow before the true and living God, those who do not worship Him, those who do not know Him, they rage. That is, they are agitated. They are tumultuous. They are in commotion. They are angry. They're not at peace, but they are at war. They are ill at ease. We see a similar statement in Psalm 46 that says, The heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved, they're they're stirred up, they're agitated, troubled, angry. And I believe that we could not find a more accurate description of modern man and modern unbelievers than this. The heathen today are still raging, angry. We live in an angry world. There's anger and rage against fellow man. We see evidence of this every day. There's violence and rage almost everywhere. It's hard to find a safe place. You may be sitting at a public library reading a book and an angry person comes in shoots you, 
the transgender crowd today is angry with anyone who opposes their perverted lifestyle and their perverted agenda. We've seen numerous instances of violence, specifically from that community against those who stand for God in this world. As in the Christian school shooting in Nashville a few weeks ago. The heathen rage, don't they? Oh, they're angry. There was some vandalism recently at the home of a state senator from Utah. And he has publicly opposed surgery that would supposedly change the sex of children. And so people from that filthy community came to his home and painted on his garage door and driveway these words, these trannies bash back. The heathen rage. We have all kinds of people angry over a whole variety of things. Sometimes they're called peaceful protests. That's become a code word for raging people. They're angry because they imagine that they are victims in some way. Everyone is a victim now. And if you're a victim, then violence, rage, anger is perfectly allowable. And in fact, it's even encouraged. And so we have militant sodomites and militant feminists and militant environmentalists and militant socialists and militant atheists and militant Muslims. And on and on that list could go. There is bitter rage against politicians and policies. And and there's rage one person against another and one party against another. We live in a very angry world, a very divided world. There are more lawsuits than the courts can handle. There are an ever-increasing number of attorneys to handle the case of those who are angry, who've been victimized, they think, in some way. Some are fanning the flames of ethnic division, just playing into the devil's playbook. It's even, I mean, you see rage going down the road. We call it that road rage. Why do the heathen rage? 
They don't even like someone not driving like they think they should. Well, these are just a few examples of the heathen raging today. We could go on and on with that. But as Isaiah says truly, the wicked are like the troubled sea. Think of the sea that's always tossing and turning. It's never at peace. It's not like a a little pond in which the water is still. The sea is always turning. And the wicked are like that. When it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Will the heathen rage against one another and against the people of God as well? But that dimension of rage is only a reflection of another dimension. And it is rage against God. And that's what this psalm is talking about especially. But rage between man and his fellow man is just a reflection of the rage that is in the heart of man against God. Now there's no quarrel with false gods. False gods are welcome. The false god of materialism, the false god of of, uh, prosperity, the the false gods of, of vain philosophers of all kinds. But the quarrel is with the holy God of Scripture. It is against him ultimately that the heathen rage. Let me give you a, an example. A week ago yesterday, a pro-life pregnancy center in Bowling Green, Ohio, was vandalized with this message painted on their building. Abort God. That is a... a Classic example of what our text is talking about. The heathen rage against God. They want to kill Him. And there is increasing violence against churches and those who in any way represent the the name of God and the cause of God and His truth in this world. Deep In the heart of every sinner, there's war against God. And we must come to grips with this. Not everyone shows it outwardly. Not everyone shows it equally and to the same degree. But in every one of us by nature, there's anger against God. Romans 8 tells us the carnal mind the mind of man lost in sin in his natural fleshly state is hatred against God, enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. 
So this is what is stated as fact here in the question. The heathen do rage, and they rage against one another, and they rage against God, ultimately. And there's another thing that's assumed here. That is that the people imagine a vain thing. They meditate, they devise an idle, vain, empty, fanciful endeavor and enterprise. And what is it? What is the vain thing that they imagine to do? Well, the following verses tell us. They want to take God off of his throne. In the words of, of, that were painted on that uh, pregnancy center, they want to abort God. That's just a modern way of saying what is here in verse, verses 2 and 3. The kings of the earth set themselves. They take their seats. They sit around a table. They're in session. And they, they counsel with one another. And they come up with this, with this plan against God in heaven and against God's anointed Son, Jesus Christ. And they say, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. That is a vain imagination. And yet people are thinking and imagining and scheming today as much as they were in David's day and as much as they were in Christ's day when he was on this earth. There is an, in every generation a plot to overthrow God, to overturn his rule, to throw off his law, and to live our way. And notice in verse 2, it's the kings and the rulers who are mentioned. The most powerful people on earth are oftentimes the most resistant against God. It's almost as if rising to power on this earth, they imagine themselves to be more than they are. And that they can now challenge God and challenge the authority of heaven itself. Those that are most powerful on earth are oftentimes the most determined to assert their autonomy and their independence from God. And that's what we see in institutions like the World Economic Forum, the United Nations, and the like. In the words of the parable given in Luke chapter 19, the, the message that the citizens sent to the nobleman, we will not have this man to reign over us. And you know, it's not just kings and rulers who have that attitude. They are mentioned because they are at the top of the pyramid, as it were, but it is everyone else beneath them. This is the common attitude of man. We want to be free from God. We want to get out from under his rule. We don't like his laws. 
We don't like his requirements. Last week, the first ever female director of NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center was sworn into office, not on a Bible, but on Carl Sagan's book entitled Pale Blue Dot, referring to Earth. And that's just an example, I say, of the attitude that prevails everywhere among unbelievers. Defiance of God, trampling on his word. We see it in government. We see it in academia. We see it in entertainment. We see it in business and on and on. We see it everywhere. The heathen do rage. The people do imagine a vain thing. And this is true, I say, of every individual personally. If you read Psalm 2 verse 1 and don't see yourself, then my friend, you are simply deceived. You're not being honest with your own soul. This is all of us by nature. It is true not only of every individual personally, it is true of every nation collectively. And we see that in our modern world, in every nation. And the rise of governments that oppose God, that have some very admittedly, and others more subtly, but all in agreement and in harmony have cast off the word of God and have no regard for it. And our nation is no exception. And there is rage against those who represent the true and living God. And those who continue to stand for his truth and his word. Even though believers in Christ make the best citizens that any nation could ever have, they are considered as enemies and threats, impediments to utopia, enemies to progress. And what we see here is true also historically. It is true of the generation that was on this earth when Jesus walked among men. In fact, as you read Psalm 2, you realize it's more messianic than Davidic. It's more about Christ than David. The Jewish people in the first century so craved freedom from Roman rule that they rejected God's rule when his son, the Messiah, came. And when they realized that he presented no earthly kingdom, but rather a spiritual kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, an internal kingdom, they rejected him. And it is ironic, it, it, perhaps we should say providential, but a providential irony 
that the Jews' false claim of loyalty to Caesar, remember that? We have no king but Caesar. And if you let Christ live, then you're an enemy of Caesar, they said to Pilate. Their false claim of loyalty to Caesar in order to secure the crucifixion of Christ sealed their own destruction at the hands of none other than Caesar. Their quest for freedom from Christ left them in bondage to divine judgment after all. Oh, the the intricacies of divine providence, the purpose of God. Well, as we read through the book of Acts, as we've mentioned there in chapter 4 and on, their rage continued on even after Christ had ascended back into heaven. Their rage continued on against the, the disciples of Christ. We see that when they stoned Stephen. Oh, how angry. How full of rage and fury they were because he simply preached the truth. And after that, we see the chief persecutor, Saul of Tarsus, breathing out threats of slaughter against them until God changed his heart and saved him out of that life of persecuting Christians. It was all because they represented Christ. That's that's the, the anger. That's the rage. Because Christ is no longer here, they have to go after those who represent him on this earth. So these are the things that this first verse assumes as fact. Yes, the heathen rage. And the people imagine this vain endeavor to take God off of his throne and to sit on that throne themselves. But now, the question is, why? Why? Well, this is a legitimate question. And we want to ponder this question and Answer it in several ways. Why do the heathen rage? Yes, they rage, but why? We might look at it in this way. What is it that has provoked man to be so angry against God? Has God been unkind? Has God been unfair? Has God been unfriendly? What is objectionable to man about God's ruling, God's governing of all things? What can anyone possibly point to about God's law that is harmful, dangerous, not suited to man's best interest. There's nothing there. What is unjust about his governing, 
of creation. The truth is, there's absolutely no good reason for the heathen, for unbelievers to be angry with God. God's rule is good. It's in our best interest. It's the only way for a man to truly prosper and to be at peace. Man's rage against God is utterly unreasonable. And putting it in the form of a question here underscores that. Yes, there are bands and cords as verse 3 speaks of. God does put limitations upon us. Rightly so. We need a lot of limitations. Lest sin run utterly rampant and unhindered. But God's cords and bands are good. As Hosea chapter 11 says, his bands are bands of love. Not of cruelty, not of oppression. There is no better master than God in heaven. So why do the heathen rage? What does man think to gain by throwing off God's rule? Do they think that they can make the world a better place without God? That they can make life better for themselves without God? That is the, the very definition of a vain imagination. Fallen man, sinful man only makes matters worse. He never makes them better. He looks at a problem and says, oh, here's the solution to the problem. He goes about to implement the solution and come to find out that solution creates two problems. And instead of fixing anything, he's actually only increased the problems. And we see that over and over again all throughout human history, ancient and modern. Romans 1 tells us, as we saw in the previous hour, that when God removes his restraints off of man and loosens the bands to some extent and gives man what he wants and gives him his his elbow room, we might say, what is the result? The result is what we see today on a global scale Moral degeneracy. And a morally degenerate society is unsustainable. It must either correct or be destroyed. It it cannot continue on. When the foundations are so eroded... One of those two must occur. We pray that God might revive us as a nation. If he doesn't, we will 
totally collapse. Why do the heathen rage? Well, here's the reason. Because man falsely imagines that God's rule is a threat to his happiness. Man in his self-deception thinks, I know what's best for me. God does not know what's best for me. He doesn't believe in a wise God. And he tries not to believe in God at all. As long as God is in charge, sinful man looks at God as a roadblock to his freedom. A hindrance to his personal fulfillment and the progress of the world at large. This is the the evil and the rebellion that is in the heart of man against God. He perceives his own wisdom. He perceives his own autonomy, his independence, his self-determination. And that is all a delusion. First planted in the heart of Eve by the lie of Satan. It comes down to this, beloved. The core issue at man's rage against God is the issue of authority. It's all about authority. Man despises heavenly authority and insists on setting up himself as his own authority. He refuses to acknowledge his creaturehood. Because if he admits to being a created person, then that means he has a creator upon whom he is dependent, And to whom he must give an answer. And so he goes about erasing God as creator. Doing all that he can in his mind to cancel God as, as creator. It's all about the authority of God as creator that is the problem to natural man. He convinces himself that he's evolved and that God had nothing to do with his origination. And so this simply exposes the the perverse heart of man, the fallen, depraved, sin-loving, truth-denying heart of man, his own pride, his love of sin, He wants to throw off the hindrances that God puts upon him in sin. And and listen, this the the examples that I've given here from current events here in the past few weeks are abundant evidence of, of this point. 
Man doesn't want God to restrain him from any sin. He doesn't want God to limit his options of sin. And what sin that man can do leaves him with a guilty conscience toward God and he seeks to silence that conscience in many different ways. That's a message in itself. All the mechanisms by which we silence the conscience toward God. That's why the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing. But let's pursue this a bit further. What is it about the gospel of Christ in particular that enrages man? What is it about the message of God's Son coming to this earth to redeem lost, unworthy sinners? Well, this message only tells us the truth. It tells us that we are sinners and that we have no hope unless God intervenes on our behalf and does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. But instead of humbling ourselves before God, we view that as an insult to our goodness. We view that as an attack against our self-righteousness. It wounds our pride. It destroys our inflated self-image and self-flattery. And so we oppose the very gospel that is the only hope for our souls. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Why would anyone scheme an impossible task? Why would they set out to accomplish the utterly impossible? Why would anyone in their right mind set out to overthrow God, to put Him off of His throne, to break His power, to escape from under God's Authority and sovereignty. Why? Because he's utterly unreasonable. Man is utterly irrational. To attempt such a thing as this is, is the most vain, hopeless undertaking imaginable. It's a fool's errand the height of folly to imagine that you can win against divine omnipotence. No undertaking was ever more certain to lose. No undertaking was ever more self-defeating. And yet that's what men set out to do. And modern man Leaders in our own government and culture, in all walks of life, in education, in science, and so on, 
They think they're wise. They think they've got it all figured out. They just need to get rid of God. And they're angry at him until they can accomplish that. Well, they'll never accomplish that, will they? It's a losing battle. Anytime you fight against God, you're certain to lose. Sooner or later. And that's what the remainder of the psalm tells us. We've spent most of our time here in verse 1, but let's just briefly run through the remainder of the psalm. Well, we've looked at verses 1 through 3. Notice verse 4, God is in no way threatened by all this rage and anger of man against him. In fact, God laughs at it. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. His throne is in no jeopardy. And he mocks at these little men who think they're so great. The Lord shall mock them, it says. He shall have them in derision. It's as if he says to them, try your best. Try to push me off of my throne. Aim your biggest weapons against me. He mocks them. And then after he mocks them and laughs at them, he's angry at them with a holy anger. Their anger against him is an unholy anger. His anger is a righteous and holy anger. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Verse 5. And here's what God the Father says in verse 6. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And who is this king that he's referring to? Well, it's the one in verse 2 called his anointed. It's his son. It's the Messiah. It's Christ. And God says, My son has been coronated. The crown is upon his head. He sits upon the throne. Jesus Christ is Lord. And this is the fact of the matter. And no one can overturn it. No one can change it. In verses 7 through 9, we see Christ himself speaking. He says, I will declare the decree. I will declare what the Father said to me when he put me upon the throne. The Lord said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. These heathen that rage and that imagine setting out to accomplish the impossible, they've all been given to Christ as part of his inheritance. And the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession, thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Christ owns all souls. By way of being the mediator between God and man, he has the right to judge every man. And some he punishes forever. Dashes them in pieces like a piece of pottery that's thrown down and it it breaks into a million pieces. 
Others, by his grace, he saves, he delivers, he redeems. And so the closing three verses give the psalmist's wise counsel to these kings and rulers and judges of the earth that have that are so angry against God, he says in so many words, you'd better make peace with God. You'd better come to terms of surrender with him. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Don't rebel against him. Don't try to throw off his authority, but come under his authority. Surrender, submit, bow to him. Serve Him with fear and rejoice with trembling. Oh, what a contrast here. Here are unbelievers at the beginning of the psalm angry in a rage and a fury. Verse 11 says there's joy and there's rejoicing if you come under the authority of the King of Heaven. There's peace in his kingdom. And the final admonition is kiss the son. That is, come to peace with him. Be at peace with him. Lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. And oh, this this closing sentence of the psalm is so glorious. Oh, it it stands in such contrast to the beginning of the psalm. Blessed, happy are all they that put their trust in Him. Who is it who's unhappy? Who's angry and in a rage? Oh, it's those who don't trust in Him, who don't surrender to Him who fight against him. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. All that man longs for is found not in resisting God, but in surrendering to God. And you come to find the joy, the peace, the happiness that you thought you would find in the opposite way is found only this way. And so as we close here today, I want to ask you, have you come to see this wisdom? Or are you still living in foolishness and in rebellion? Against God? Are you still angry against God and against those who represent God and against your fellow man in general? This psalm tells us that true freedom is found only in serving Christ. True happiness is found only in trusting in 
him. The only way that you'll be delivered from your rage against God is to be at peace with him through Christ the Redeemer. And so I urge you to throw down the weapons of your warfare against him. Surrender. Come under his authority. And you will find the best master that you could ever have.